I will be reading from Revelation 4, verses 1 and 2, 9 through 11, and 5, 11 through 13. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated, seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for today's sermon, we're going to hear from a friend of our church. Uh, Jason is going to be speaking to us from halfway around the world where he and his family live and work. Jason's been a friend of our church for about 15 years, and it's been so helpful to learn from him as he helps teach the Bible when he's been here stateside. And during this COVID time, we have the creative opportunity to hear from him from his home all the way in Turkey. So thanks for joining us, Jason. Hello and greetings. I'm Jason Borges, and I'm recording this video from Turkey, where our family has lived for the last three years. We're doing fine and enjoying the end of summer here. And probably like most of you, we're trying to figure out the upcoming school year. Uh, this year, our girls will be in grades eight, four, and two, and we'll probably be homeschooling the three. So yeah, regarding coronavirus, things have uh, obviously been kind of quiet here. We live in a more touristy region, but all that's come to an end. So there's been a lot more opportunities to connect with people as they have been less busy. Uh, the government here has been quite proactive in managing the situation well, and we're thankful for that. But obviously the situation can, you know, change any time um, <clears throat> these days. And really, I think we're about six months into COVID. And as I look back and reflect on, you know, what we've experienced and what our, what our souls have gone through, two words really come to mind about the situation. It's uncertainty and vulnerability, right? We feel this physically, financially, socially, and we're learning that we really don't have as much control over our lives as we once assumed, right? We were used to planning months and even years in advance, but now we're living life like day by day and week by week. You know, we really don't have a plan for tomorrow or what that might look like. And we got so used to being in control. I think about our life and how, you know, we were the main actors on our stage and we were the subjects who wrote our own stories. 
But now we're starting to realize, you know, as humans, how finite we are actually. And it's incredible to think, you know, we humans are capable of some really incredible things in terms of loving or creating. But at the same time, we're very fragile and we're vulnerable. And I think in the last six months or so, we have felt this much more than we probably prefer to feel this. You know, I, I, I feel sometimes like life is a Jenga tower with most of the pieces that are missing from it. And it's just a matter of time before the whole thing comes crashing down. You know, it's just, it, it's teetering, barely standing up. And to be honest, this reality, it's hard to accept. You know, for me as a husband and a dad of three girls, I want to ensure a certain reality for our family, but I can't. You know, for a long time, I've played the role of creator. Uh, and I think we all have, especially for those of us in the West, where we're, you know, so focused on, you know, controlling time. We were able to manage and harness nature and we kind of bend reality to our will. And we thought for a long time, you know, we we're the master of our own fate. And in the modern Western worldview, it's so predicated on this idea of control and autonomy, right? I do what I want, I do it when I want, I define myself, I plan my days, and so on. And, you know, when we lose that control, or better yet, I, when we lose that perception of control, we're not even sure who we are, right? It, it's that central to our identity. And so we've lived with that illusion of power for, for so long as if we're creators that, that it became embedded into our own self-identity, as if we were the sovereign and as if our decisions, you know, shaped reality. But we see that we're just creatures, you know, we're just part of the, the normal order. And, and in reality, our preferences and our desires really don't shape reality as much as we thought. You know, whether it comes down to a virus, whether it's, you know, certain protest, whether it's our economic situation, you know, we're more the creatures than we are the creators. And so then the question emerges from this, right? Who's in charge then? Who's running things? Who is sovereign? Not only who made the world, but who can remake this world? Who can bring it out of the depths and who can fix it again? And obviously these are rhetorical questions, right? As we're going through this sermon series that's titled Jesus is Lord, right? So the obvious answer is Jesus. And we're, and you know, uh, I think for many of us uh, as Christians, that answer comes simply, you know, we identify that it is Jesus. But in times like this, we start to ask, where is he? Not just who, who is in control, but yeah, okay, so Jesus is control, but where is he in a times like this? And we're certainly not the first one to ask these questions of who's in control, who has sovereign power. And now I understand, you know, for many of us throughout the entire world today, our situation is very challenging, but we can look back in history and you recognize that there was a point in time, uh, especially for the audience uh, to whom John wrote the book of Revelation, when the situation was even more tenuous and threatening. And so remember, the book of Revelation was written in a very uh, trying times to a group of seven churches uh, in a specific time in a specific location in history. And those seven churches are actually located here in Western Turkey. You can go and visit their ancient ruins and, you know, walk the same streets that the ancient Christians would have walked as well. Now, about the date of John, I'll just say a quick word on this. There's two main theories when the book of Revelation was written. And this is important because it provides the context and helps us to understand, you know, why John wrote what he actually did. And so many people think that John wrote Revelation in the 90s, the last decade of the first century, during the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. 
But then there's others who think that he wrote it in the late 60s during the time of Nero. You've heard about this crazy Roman emperor uh, named Nero. Uh, now, we can't be exactly certain when the book of Revelation was written, but I think the latter uh, option actually makes more sense, that it happened uh, to be written in the late 60s. And this is significant because let's think about what was happening in other places, you know, in the Mediterranean uh, at the same time. So the city of Jerusalem uh, in the year 66 got attacked by the Roman emperors and it got destroyed in the year 70. So not only... Uh, was there a loss of the sacred city of Jerusalem, but all these, you know, first generation Christians who were where the Christian movement started in Jerusalem and obviously a lot of Jewish uh, people as well, they become refugees and they flee out of Jerusalem and they come into these cities like Ephesus or Smyrna to whom John wrote these letters. And then on the other side of the Roman Empire in Rome, half the city gets burned down by the emperor Nero and then he scapegoats the Christians. So at the time, you know, the Christians were uh, being burned literally at the stake. The two main leaders of the Christian movement, Peter and Paul, uh, they get martyred in Rome. And then on top of that, the year 69 is known in Roman history as the year of the four emperors because they kept knocking one another off. And so, you know, we often think either the pandemics and the protests, they're obviously stressful. But let me try to kind of transpose just the chaos and the instability of uh, the audience of Revelation into a modern American context. So imagine, you know, a foreign power comes in, destroys the city of L.A., Washington, D.C. gets burned to the ground. All the Christians get blamed for that. Your two pastors uh, get martyred. Sorry, Bob, it's just hypothetical, don't worry. And then in one year, we have four different presidents because they are killing one another off. That would be, now that's chaos, right? And you can imagine the level of uncertainty and the vulnerability that Christians were living with in that time in cities like Ephesus or Laodicea or Pergamum to whom John wrote this uh, apocalypse of Revelation. You know, you ever watched that TV show 24 uh, with Jack Bauer? Every season has a complete breakdown in the world order, right? And this is the, it's that sort of situation that John wrote Revelation into. So naturally, they're going to be asking these same questions. Who's in control? Where is God? And it's into this situation that John provides a cosmic vision of Jesus on the throne, especially in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. So let's read through that. And let me, uh, before we jump into Revelation, I want to say a quick word about interpreting uh, this book. The genre of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. And what that means is that a heavenly truth is getting revealed to people here on earth. And this goal of the literature, of this type of literature, was to help the hearers interpret their situation, right? It was to provide a divine perspective on human events or a, a theology of history. It's to help them give a better uh, get a better vision of who God is and what he's doing in the world. So let's read through Revelation 4 and 5. So in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has just addressed these seven letters to the different churches and their situation of what they're facing and the challenges in their community. But then in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, we see that John gets invited up to heaven to see things from a different perspective. So Revelation 4, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. After this I looked, and lo, in heaven an open door, and the first voice, which I had heard opening to me, speak like a trumpet, and said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. 
And at once I was in the spirit, and lo, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he, and he who sat there appeared like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that looked like an emerald. So the first thing we see is a huge throne and one seated on the throne. This phrase, it's a really important title in the book of Revelation, the one seated on the throne. And John loves to use these, you know, symbolic euphemisms for God. He says the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, the Lord God Almighty. And all of these terms reveal actually who God is, his character, his essence. And so John rarely just says God, but instead he gives titles like this, the one seated on the throne. And this has a really active meaning to it. And so think about it. A throne is a symbol of royal authority. And it's from a throne room that the king makes decisions and exercises their, their rule over a territory. The throne, it's a claim to authority over other people. And this is where kings decide what's going to happen. Well, this is God on the throne, and he is the one who is sovereign over all things. And you'll notice there's actually a, a fairly minimal description of God's appearance in this passage. It just says he uh, appeared like Jasper. And this, you know, evokes the divine splendor of who God is and how radiant and majestic and precious he is. But John actually focuses our attention not simply on the one on the throne, but what's happening around the throne. And this is the activity of worship. At this point, God has overcome his enemies. He has established his kingdom. And this is recognized by all the beings in heaven. So let's read verse 4 of Revelation chapter 4. And around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the throne are 24 elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. So they are co-rulers, right? These are figures with authority. And then jump down to verse 8. And then there's four living creatures. Each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and inside. And day and night without ceasing they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So we have the four living creatures. This is actually a reference back to Ezekiel 1 and Daniel chapter 7, when those two Old Testament prophets also had a vision of God, the throne room uh, scene of God. And what they see there are these four living creatures that represent all of creation. And sure enough, you know, they have six wings, which represents their authority, and they're full of eyes, which represents their, their wisdom or their ability to see spiritual truths uh, in a way that we humans simply can't. And what do they do, these figures uh, who can see God up close? They cry out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. He is the sovereign one, right? And then in verse 9 of Revelation 4, I'll keep reading verses 9 through 11. And you can hear their worship. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders fall down before the one who is seated on the throne. And they worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Right? These figures in heaven, these 24 elders and these living creatures and these angels, they see God's sovereignty as it truly is in heaven. Right? This is a picture of God being fully acknowledged for who he is. 
And this scene of worship, it's not just descriptive of, you know, something that's going off in a faraway place, but it's also prescriptive, right? It's describing how we on earth should be encountering and seeing God. And so this scene in Revelation chapter 4 actually draws us in to see God as the one who is deserving of worship, as the one who sits on the throne, as the one who creates and sustains all things. And regardless of whatever happens on earth, his praise endures in heaven, and we are called to participate in that and join in that. And one other uh, final thing I want to say about this scene is notice like the layout or the geography of it, right? So we have God in the middle, and there's all these creatures that are around him on the sides. And think about how different that is from how we view the world, yeah? We place ourselves in the center of it, and then everything else kind of revolves around that. But Revelation is radically theocentric. God is the focus of everything because he is the the creator of all things. So this is the, the reality that God is sovereign, God's on the throne. But then we come to Revelation chapter 5 and we face a problem. I'll read chapter 5, 1 through 4. Then I, it's John the the prophet or the seer of the book, then I saw the right hand of the one seated on the throne, a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. And I began to be bitterly, began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Think of the scroll as, you know, like the, the unveiling of God's will. It's the establishment of God's kingdom, right? No one can open the scroll with seven seals means that no one can realize God's plan for the creation. There's not a savior that's going to come in and fulfill all of God's promises of redeeming his people and redeeming creation and banishing sin and death and Satan. So what we need is an agent who can do this, who can redeem us and fix the situation. And the question becomes, how will God's sovereignty take effect and become real? Who is going to do this? Right? God is sovereign in in heaven, but here on earth it doesn't look that way. And who is going to bring God's sovereignty, God's kingdom to earth? And so um, in the next passage, John hears a lion And then he sees a lamb. And this is key because often in uh, John's gospel and the book of Revelation, he pairs together what is heard with what he's seen. And this interprets uh, these two images or these two things interpret one another. So I'm going to read Revelation 5 verses 5 through 7. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? The conqueror, the victor. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll on its seven seals. Then I saw before the throne and the four living creatures among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And then he, the lamb, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. So what makes this figure, uh, this lamb, worthy and capable of opening the scroll? How does God's sovereignty become real? It's through the death of Jesus. The lamb has won a victory through his own death, through his sacrifice. 
And you notice the means of how Jesus wins is through suffering, through giving his own life. He doesn't demand worship. He doesn't expect things from other people like the Roman emperors, but he redeems and he saves. He, he gives his own life so that others can have life and enter into God's presence. So you notice the lion is the lamb. The, those two figures, they're obviously, you know, uh, symbolic. A lion represents victory and a lamb represents sacrifice. And it's to show that the victory actually happens through self-giving sacrifice. And this is how God's sovereignty or God's dominion becomes a reality. And for people who are distressed or discouraged, whether it be, you know, in John's day or even in our day, this becomes a huge point of, of truth, right? This is a really key revelation of how God works in the world, how he brings his salvation, because it's in our endurance through suffering or our perseverance in worshiping God in all times that that we continue and uh, experience and embody God's sovereign power that was won on the cross. So interestingly, uh, later the book of Revelation says that we Christians are people who follow the lamb wherever he goes and we wash our robes in the blood of the lamb. Our identity as followers of the true king is expressed by our relationship with the sacrificial lamb, right? So this redefines our notions of control and autonomy and comfort. So then even before Jesus can open the scrolls, all the host of heavens, they bow down and they begin to worship him. And they understand that, wow, Jesus, he, he is like the one who sits on the throne. He is upon the throne. He's uniquely divine. And so in Revelation 5, uh, 7 through 10, they sing a new song. It says, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slaughtered and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. For you have made them a kingdom and priest serving our God and they will reign on earth. Right? This kind of sounds familiar to um, the song that Miriam the Israelites sung in Exodus 15 after the Exodus, right? So Jesus here is creating a new people. He's uh, bringing them out uh, from a new, uh, bringing them out from bondage and uh, bringing them into a, making them a new kingdom of priests who are going to come and worship God. And so uh, the chapter ends with every living creature in heaven on earth singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So here we have it, what's a picture of true reality. The one who is on the throne and his Lamb are getting worshipped by all of creation, right? Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what is happening, this is a perspective that reframes and redefines what, <clears throat> what we humans are going through and encounter. So typically in a sermon, you know, we move from the biblical text to application for us. Um, but instead of jumping over 2,000 years of history, I actually want to do a quick pit stop in the middle point there. Um, and I'm going to pause and examine one way that the historical church has applied and expressed this truth that Jesus is Lord, that he's the one on the throne. Now, as I mentioned, our family lives in central Turkey, a region called Cappadocia. And this area is actually really famous for its natural cone formations. You can see in the picture here, uh, these are often called fairy chimneys. Uh, and this region here actually has a very rich Christian history because in the Middle Ages, around the year 900, Christian monks carved hundreds and hundreds of churches and monasteries into these volcanic rocks. And what's interesting is that their architecture and their painting 
you know, it copies a typical Byzantine or medieval church. Um, but then, uh, and so they follow a lot of the same patterns of on the inside of what a church looks like. And so at that time in the Christian world, there is a standard way of painting Bible stories and painting saints to communicate who Jesus was. So here is one of the cave churches. This has been carved out of the living rock. And you can see this is the front of the church, often called the apse. Um, and there's different saints and church fathers and apostles that are painted throughout. But I want to focus on, you can see the round picture on the very back on the top of the uh, roof of the apse. And it's this picture right here. And this picture is actually called Christ in Glory. And it's one of the most important images in Christian history. It has a really rich theological meaning. And you'll probably start figuring out the church, this image, Christ in Glory, is actually a depiction of Revelation 4 and 5. So I want to explain a few elements to you and then talk about, you know, how it invokes a sense of worship. And so by doing this, I want, you know, to, to stop and think about, okay, how have other Christians in history, how have they understood this reality of Jesus on the throne? How have they expressed it? And here they're using, um, you know, the, the visual image to communicate this theological truth. And so, um, the scene often appears on the dome of the church, the highest point, and so it represents the realm of heaven. And so because of the angle of it, of Jesus more on the roof and not on the wall, it's like he's looking down and protecting his people. He, he cares for his people. And you'll also notice the clothing of Jesus. The red underlayer represents divinity, and then the blue outer cloak represents his humanity that he assumed or he took on in the, uh, the incarnation. And so obviously Jesus is seated on a throne. It's a bejeweled um, golden throne. It has these red cushions on the bottom of it and on the back you see it has a footrest. And what that is, that is a standard image of a Roman imperial throne. And so when they wanted to communicate Jesus on the throne, naturally they used images from the Roman Empire to show that Jesus, he's actually the true emperor. He is the true Lord. And so uh, Jesus' face, you know, he has fair skin and red hair. He kind of looks Irish a little bit, yeah? And so needless to say, that's not actually how Jesus looked. We don't know how Jesus looked. We just know that he was a Middle Eastern person. Um, but the first painted images uh, came around the year 500 of Jesus. The first painted images of Jesus came around the year 500 in church history. And by that time uh, in church history, most believers were Greeks and Romans, so they depicted Jesus like themselves. That's why he has a more of a Western look. And this is pretty much the, the image that has endured for most of church history. And so you'll notice Jesus' hand is up like this. That's to communicate, um, not uh, on one hand, a blessing uh, to his people, but it's also a sign that Greek orators use to signal, I have something important to say, and you need to listen to me. I'm an authority here, and I'm going to proclaim something. So then around Jesus and around the throne, you notice that there are four animals, and those are the four living creatures that we talked about. One's a human, a lion, an eagle, and an ox, and they represent all of creation. Uh, and again, these appear in several of the biblical uh, visions of God's throne. Think of Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7, Revelation 4 that we just read. And what's really interesting is that later in church history, already by the second century, uh, the church fathers considered these four living uh, figures to be synonymous with the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And so you'll notice that each one actually holds a gospel book in their hands, kind of similar to the one Jesus has. That represents the gospel that they wrote. And in the reason why the church fathers said this is, okay, the four living creatures saw God, they saw his glory, and they proclaimed his glory. Well, who are the people that saw Jesus and proclaimed his glory? Well, it's the gospel writers, right? They're the ones who recount the story of Jesus and communicate that to us. So, um, and then outside of Jesus and the throne and the four living creatures, there's a huge circle. And that represents Jesus's holiness or his uh, glory in heaven. You're now, um, if you've uh, been to um, uh, ancient cathedral, all the saints have a halo around their head that communicates their holiness or their sanctity. But here Jesus has a huge halo that surrounds his whole body that represents his post-resurrection glory, right? Because at this point when Jesus is seated on the throne, he's got a new body and he is in a new state of glory. So uh, here's another picture uh, <clears throat> that just kind of pans out. You'll notice even outside of that halo, there are more figures and more angels. And so you have the seraphim, the uh, sixth wing angels that are on the outside of that. They're the ones with the dark brown, the smaller angels that have the dark brown uh, wings, two on top, two on the side, two on bottom. And then the two larger angels are Michael and Gabrielle. They're wearing imperial attire because they're like soldiers, right? They protect the, the throne room of the king. And they hold two staffs, and on top of them, you can't read it in the picture, but in Greek it has the words, holy, 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 because that's the constant song of the angels in heaven. And in Christian theology, angels, they symbolize divine presence, right? They stand in the heavenly courts, and they praise God, and they worship him. And whenever someone comes in and sees God in his full glory, they cry out, holy, holy, holy. Think of Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw God on the throne, or Revelation chapter 4, as we had read. And so that's kind of a, a breakdown. That's, you know, the anatomy uh, of the scene um, that we're looking at. Again, it's a picture called Christ in glory. And most pictures, or I'm sorry, most churches have this picture of Jesus in the most important spot of the church. It's in the, the back of the sanctuary so that when people are standing in the main part of the church and looking forward towards the altar or towards the sanctuary, they have a vision of Jesus there uh, on the throne. And as worshipers looked upon this scene, the priest during the liturgy would read, the four living creatures are singing the victory hymn and crying out, holy, 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 Lord God almighty, heaven and earth are filled with your glory. So just as we read, the book of Revelation paints a poetic picture of Jesus' sovereignty. These medieval churches here in Cappadocia painted a visual picture of Jesus' sovereignty. And so the scene is really uh, worship-inducing. It draws you in because often as I lead, uh, take groups uh, into these churches, we'll read Revelation 4 and 5 so they can see the correspondence between John's vision and this medieval picture. And what happens is you imagine yourself and you feel yourself joining in this heavenly choir and, and worshiping Jesus, the one who sits on the throne. And that comes back to, you know, Revelation uh, 4 and 5. And we talked about the centrality of worship 
when we see and experience God's sovereignty. And when we worship, we're actually entering into the courts of heaven and we are participating with the angelic hosts that are declaring God is worthy and he is holy and he is sovereign and he is upon the throne. When we worship God, and I'm not just talking about, you know, watching a Sunday service or, you know, being a part of a Sunday service and singing a a few uh, songs, but I'm talking about proclaiming God's glory from our inner being about living as if Jesus was the true Lord and our, and our pure relationship with him is one of worship, uh, of submitting and bowing down to him and proclaiming his glory. When we worship like that, we are making heaven a reality here on earth, right? The act of worship is acknowledging the glory of Jesus on his throne and it, it enacts or it demonstrates our belief that he really is the Lord, right? He, he truly is the one seated on the throne. And it's not just that Jesus is my Lord or I've accepted him as Lord, but Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord over all things. And this brings us back to Revelation. Um, and all throughout the book, John plays off of this theme of worship. And it becomes central uh, throughout the book. And he has a really profound uh, insight in this regard. John realizes that there's two types of people in the world. Now, I realize in today's polarized uh, environment, it's a bit uh, 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 dangerous um, and often unhelpful to divide the world into two categories. Um, but we're, people do it all the time. And we're really, we've become really good at dividing people up into two groups. But the problem is, is that we often draw the line in the wrong place. We create two camps and this leads to two categories that are false. And then when we start applying that, it becomes destructive to the way, um, you know, we relate to people or the way that we have relationships. So what we need is John's understanding of really, you know, how should we understand humanity? And John says this, there's two types of people. There's those who worship the true God and there's those who worship false gods. And the claim that Jesus is Lord not only defines who Jesus is, but it defines us. We, we are either one of two types of people. We're someone giving worship to a false Lord, or someone who worships Jesus and bears witness to the reality of his Lordship, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the vulnerability, regardless of the chaos that we might feel. We are the ones who worship Jesus and say, no, you are Lord. You're the one who conquered evil. You're the one who conquered death through your cross. And because of that, we're going to come and we're going to worship you, Jesus. Amen.